Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's edition of the podcast, and we want to jump into the Torah portion this week. Rabbi, it's always a privilege to study the Word of God with you. How are you, my friend? Thank God. Uh, doing great. Uh, as we've discussed special times, uh, in Israel, the general season, uh, this is a week of a festival called Lagba Omer, where there's big bonfires all over the city, all the country, people celebrating the light and the, of Torah and the light of God, and getting ourselves at some point down the road ready for uh, Jerusalem Day as well. So good, good, happy times overall. I'm glad to hear that. We do want to discuss this week's Torah portion, Emor is the title. It's the Hebrew word for speak, and it comes from Leviticus chapters 21 through 24. And it begins with a very important discussion about the laws of cleanliness for priests and the general instructions for priests. And this carries on the idea that the leaders of the people of Israel the sons of Aaron were to be the spiritual leaders, the spiritual guides to bring the people into the presence of the Lord. And so this Torah portion that we jump into here in Leviticus chapter 21 talks about the high amount of preparation and the holiness needed by these specific men who will be their, the representatives of the people to the Lord. So talk about why such specific instructions. So Pastor, you have actually raised a few times uh, during Leviticus, about the role of, of the priests and how that exactly worked and how they were the messengers of God and the messengers of the people sort of on both sides. So there are all kinds of commands that they're given to make sure that they maintain their high spiritual level. Remember, these are people who did not have a portion in the land of Israel. Their portion was the temple. Uh, the people would support them, and they were supposed to be exclusively focused on spiritual pursuits. They're not working the fields, they're not going out to earn a living, all spirituality. To be people of complete spirituality, they have to have a high level of purity, a high level of spiritual cleanliness. And this is an element which, I'm curious to hear if you have this at all in Christianity, but even for Jews today, it's a difficult concept to understand. Spiritual contamination, the terminology in Hebrew is tum'ah, for purity, and tahara for purity, and it's something which we accept as a reality, even though we don't necessarily see it. So just to give one example, which is the very first command, uh, the priests uh, have a command in general that they're not allowed to become impure to a dead body. That means they can't touch a dead body, they can't be under the same roof with a dead body, they can't be involved in the burial of a dead body, and the portion gives rules that, well, if it's for a close relative of theirs, they can. Uh, the high priest can never do so, but it really sets this message of they're different uh, than everyone else. They, they have to be spiritually elevated and avoid any kind of uh, spiritual contamination. I don't know if they have that concept at all uh, in Christianity of a spiritual contamination with actual ramifications in one's lives. It's not quite the same, but there is a 
concept of spiritual leaders being held to a higher standard. If we were to read the New mm-hmm. Testament chapters, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, they talk about the overseer or the pastor or the elders within the church, the deacons within the church have a high calling to be men of righteousness, to be people of character. And so while it's not quite the same in terms of its physical actions, it's more spiritual qualities, I think the same principle applies that the people who represent the people to the Lord and the Lord to the people are held to a higher standard. Absolutely. And the statement which I think really captures it is actually in chapter 21, verse 8, where it just says, the kidash to. He has to be sanctified, because he's the one who brings forth the, the bread of God. He, he's the one who is, who is involved daily with the holiness, and therefore, of course, the people, the commoners, have to try to be lofty and holy people as well. But uh, we, we, we're, we're extra cautious when it comes to those who are going to be in the temple on a, on a regular basis. By the way, just by extension, there are rules about regular people who come to the temple and how they have to get themselves ready for that process as well. And just since the, high, the priests are there on a daily basis, uh, they're held to this higher standard. And you're right, we're also, also teachers of the people, and they were people, certainly the high priest who everyone looked to, as we talked about in previous portions, in terms of the Yom Kippur service and other things as well. So uh, it's important for them to be um, viewed in a, in a high spiritual level and to actually be uh, on that high spiritual level. We're going to go deeper into this Torah portion from Leviticus in a moment, but Rabbi, here's one question for you. How do you balance this teaching? that we are to be holy and we are to be righteous and we are to be careful in our service before the Lord, yet at the same time recognize that a sinless God allows sinful people into his presence, so his grace allows those of us who can't live up to still come to him for forgiveness. How do you balance those two? Well, well I think that's, that's one of the most important points to make. Um, the, the reason why there is a concept of repentance and forgiveness uh, is because we've been put in a place where we're human beings and we are going to fail, and, and, and the leaders uh, as well. And the biggest question is, what does the person do with it uh, when that happens and try to repair himself? God does not expect us to be flawless. He knows that we make mistakes. Um, and the Bible is filled with those stories uh, from beginning to end of the greatest of people uh, who made mistakes and then uh, tried to repair them afterwards. And that's really, you know, do we reach out and recognize that it's God who's going to bring us back? Not ourselves, uh, but God. And, and even the high priests, there are special sacrifices for the priests when they make mistakes, when they sin. Uh, so that's all built into the system. That doesn't mean, therefore, we should say, okay, I'll be lax now, and I'll just go through a repentance process. We're always supposed to try to be on guard and doing the best that we can. But the Bible is so clear that it's a built-in system for when failure comes, and failure will come, because that's what it means to be a human being. And uh, the question is, does a person allow himself to continue spiraling downward? Perhaps even say, oh, I'm a sinner, so that's it. Or does the person say, no, I'm a sinner, but the Lord is the one who gave me the opportunity to come back to him and then climb yourself back up. And I think that's why it's so important uh, that even these commands, right, that the high priest is being told, 
make yourself holy. You're not naturally holy. You're not naturally on the level, and you have to work at it. And working at it means uh, that there will be ups and downs. But that, that critical, critical point, that the temple itself, where we're being held to such a high standard and a high level of holiness, is also the place where we bring those sacrifices. Uh, when we fail, we, we, we fall down, and we climb our back up. Our Christian listeners will know about Romans chapter 6, verse 1, written by Rabbi, the Apostle, Paul. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? He says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Meaning what you just said. We don't sin more so God can forgive us more. That's the wrong attitude, the wrong motivation. He says in the next verse, for Christian believers, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, that in order as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the teaching there, Rabbi, for the Christian believers is you don't sin just so you can be forgiven. You work to be righteous to carry on the principle that comes from Leviticus 22, verse 31, starting, it says, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So both in Leviticus 22 and in Romans 6, the teaching is, be holy like your God is holy and receive the gift of grace and forgiveness when needed, but you don't try to dishonor God or play games with God and sin intentionally just to receive more forgiveness. I think it's, it's the point that you made, uh, the verse that you pointed to about God saying that I'm the one who makes you holy, that's also the critical point, uh, which, which is repeated uh, a few times, uh, to recognize that the only way to reach that holiness is via God. There's no other way. Human beings can try to find ways, uh, but to actually achieve that holiness, uh, it can only God is the one who grants that, just like God is the one who grants us the uh, opportunities that we have in life to do good or to do bad. But the holiness that comes through our decisions to do good and even to go through repentance uh, comes from God. Let's move into Leviticus chapter 23 because I want to talk about the calendar, the festivals or the holidays of the biblical calendar, and it comes starting in Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my times are these." For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Then verse 4 says, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. And then we get into the biblical calendar. And the way I understand it, rabbis, you can break it into two sections, the spring feasts and the fall feasts, and some say that there's four spring feasts, some say three, depending on if you make Passover and unleavened bread the same feast or separate. Then you've got first fruits and Pentecost, also called Shavuot. Those are the spring feasts. The fall feasts, you've got the Feast of Trumpets, 
the Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which we already talked about, and then tabernacles or booths called Sukkot in Hebrew. So help us understand the meaning of these holiday feasts spiritually, but also they have an agricultural teaching to them. That's correct, Pastor. That's correct, Pastor. It's interesting. We have um, specific things that we're celebrating, uh, events that took place. So, for example, the very first of the holidays, uh, which is described beginning in chapter 23, verse 5, uh, talks about Passover. And that's obviously, on one level, that's the um, celebration of the exodus from Egypt. We then have a period of time where we count um, the seven weeks from that until the next feast, which you alluded to, which we call Shavuot, even though the Bible doesn't say anything uh, directly about it, and this is uh, talked about on verse, um, just want to give you the exact one, uh, where we offer the second the bread. It's offered on in verse uh, 18, uh, 17, 18, uh, and 19, uh, that bread, uh, that's holiday, is called Shavuot. In our tradition, that's actually the date when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. So we have a seven-week process from Passover to Shavuot, and then we continue with Sukkot, which is another fall feast, which is talked about after the high holidays, um, but we're told that we're supposed to actually sit in, uh, in the booths. That, uh, which begins in verse uh, 34, that's commemorating the people of Israel living in booths or being cloaked by the clouds of glory while they were in the desert. So they have those commemorations, but and this is a point which uh, is so critical to understand. We also have the perspective, like you said, Pastor, of the agricultural side. Passover is the spring when the things, uh, when we, uh, you know, after the rainy season, everything starts to grow. So it's a time to give thanks to God for the rains that we had during the winter and the fact that the crops are starting to grow. Uh, Shavuot is the time that we harvest. Uh, so we're thanking God for the successful crops and the harvest. And then after the harvest, you lay the crops out in the fields the whole summer to dry. And then when the fall comes on Sukkot, it's the holiday of gathering when you actually gather all the crops in and we celebrate the tremendous bounty that God has given us. Uh, we live in a world today where we just go to the supermarket and you choose your from your 20 brands of uh, pickles and uh, everything is just out there uh, for us to choose. And it's very difficult for us to tap into, wait a minute, this grew from the ground. God gave to me. And these holidays are amazing moments to pause and recognize at each step of the way that this is not man's uh, intellect uh, that created this, but it's God uh, who has given it to us. And therefore, it's very, very important in our faith to have these holidays to recognize of those steps of the way. Even though, though you don't have the specific holidays, I know that the message is the one which uh, you certainly and uh, your faith would agree to. Well, we actually 100% agree, and we believe that Jesus, who we consider to be Messiah, lived a Jewish life on this earth, and he celebrated these holidays. We know that he, as a young boy, was taken to Jerusalem for the festivals by his mother and his earthly father Joseph when they lived in Nazareth. They would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple. We also believe that these holidays are directly connected to the Easter story. We think that Jesus was crucified on Passover. We call him our Passover lamb. So he was sacrificed or murdered or crucified on the Passover. He was raised on first fruits, what we call Easter Sunday, the Resurrection Day. Later on in the book of Acts, 50 days later, 
which is what Pentecost means is 50th. That's the day the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And the book of Acts chapter 2 says 3,000 people gave their lives or became followers of Jesus on that day. And we believe that Jesus is coming back. And so you have an idea of the, the return of Jesus continuing on in these symbols of the Jewish festivals. So we don't only think that Jesus lived them. We think that he is celebrated by them or his life on this earth symbolized each of these holidays. So it's something that connects the two of us that these are special days that the Lord set aside on his calendar to remind us of his grace, to remind us of his provision. As you said, it's a spiritual component and we specifically see that in the life of Jesus as I just described, but the agricultural component that the Lord provides for us physically on the earth. And that's why Jesus prayed that prayer in the model prayer of Matthew that says, give us this day our daily bread, which is of course a reminder back to the manna of the wilderness. So God is a heavenly father who cares about us spiritually, but also physically. So I'm encouraged that these biblical holidays care about our daily lives as much as they do about our spiritual lives. Absolutely. And I'm very happy that you mentioned Jerusalem. Uh, I think that's a critical component for everyone who's listening to understand that in these three festivals, uh, everyone and every male, every female and child that could made their way towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the descriptions in Josephus and other places of what it was like as all of the people of Israel came to Jerusalem. And uh, this was three times a year that we call them the Shalosh Regalim, the three pillars, so to speak, the three legs of, of our holidays. And, um, you know, this when we talk in current events and over the next few weeks, you're going to be hearing a lot about Jerusalem. It's so important to remember that our connection to Jerusalem doesn't begin in 1948. Uh, it begins thousands of years ago where the Bible talks about are coming to the place that God will choose, which is going to be uh, Jerusalem. And this is a major focal point. Remember, back then, to travel to Jerusalem, it wasn't as easy as today. There was a planning process. There was a constant fixation on having to get uh, to Jerusalem. So the Jerusalem plays a major part in this as well. The idea was, three times a year, you got to go there and recharge your spiritual batteries. And the place to do that uh, is in Jerusalem. The other side of Jerusalem, though, is actually how the holidays were declared. If you remember when you first, Pastor, quoted the verse about the holidays, you talked about them being holidays which are, you call them out as holy. According to our tradition, witnesses had to see the new moon in the months when these holidays fall. They would come to Jerusalem and testify. They saw the new moon and the new month was declared, and the actual date of the holiday was determined based on that, which meant that the, the, the leaders, the sages, had to declare from Jerusalem the new month has started, now plan for the holidays. That means that not only three times a year were people coming to Jerusalem, but every single month their eyes would turn toward Jerusalem to find out when is the new moon, when is the new month starting. Jerusalem was constantly on their minds, and looking for guidance from Jerusalem was constantly a part of their lives, and this is also a big, big focus of the holiday cycle. And Rabbi, is it true that the holidays began to be observed annually after the people entered the Promised Land? They didn't do this in the wilderness. They surely didn't do this in slavery in Egypt. So the remembrance of God's provision to give them the land and bring them to the land is 
seen through the holidays, but they actually began to be observed when you entered the land. And, and, and because so much of it focuses on uh, being in the land, uh, that's a big part of it. So, uh, you know, there's discussion about what exactly was observed in the desert or not, but you're 100% correct that in its full sense, all of this was fulfilled in the land of Israel. By the way, by extension, we even have a tradition that all the commandments are really ultimately supposed to be fulfilled in the land of Israel. Even commentaries, high-level commentaries, that say the fulfillment of commandments outside the land is just practice for when you actually get to the land. That's how important uh, that that element actually is. So uh, certainly when it comes to the holidays, and especially if it's an agricultural celebration, that relates directly to what God is giving us in the actual land. And Rabbi, I think we should conclude the discussion of Leviticus 24 with some difficult verses about blasphemy and the command to have a person punished, even by the sentence of death for such things. And we get to Leviticus twenty four seventeen. If any man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death, which is a biblical verse that's used to support capital punishment or the death penalty. So it's really difficult to have the beauty of these holidays and the beauty of these festivals in the same Torah portion with these harsh judgments for sin. Why do you think they're so closely connected in terms of where they're located in Leviticus. And by the way, I'll strengthen your question because there's even discussion elsewhere in the Bible about people who violate some of the holidays, uh, whether it's eating the unleavened bread on Passover or people who don't fast on Yom Kippur, uh, that there's death penalty associated with that. Uh, first of all, let me just say about capital punishment, it is difficult uh, for us to understand the idea of stoning, as mentioned here specifically, things which in our time it's very difficult for us to relate to uh, culturally and emotionally, even psychologically. Um, two things to say about that. Number one is uh, many, many commentaries actually say that this rarely happened, even though we do see a story play out here where it did, uh, because there are many laws that are put in place to make it almost impossible that the court would actually execute someone because of all the little details that have to play out for that to, to happen. But then point two, so what's it for? It shows us the severity of it, right? To understand that for, for doing something uh, you can be executed for, that in and of itself makes you realize how significant uh, this is. There are acts that you might not think are so significant, um, but God says that the result is capital punishment. So I think murder is one which sticks out as something which most people understand, at least, whether they agree with it or not in their own lives or minds, the concept that you've killed someone, you've forfeited your right uh, to life. People can understand that. People cannot understand it, though, when it comes to violating a holiday, when it comes to violating some other things. And I think what God is saying is that the Word of God is the Word of God. We don't place a hierarchy in terms of what commandments uh, are more serious or, or not, or we, we, sh- we shouldn't do so, except for certain circumstances where it's discussed about a person giving up their life instead of violating a command. But generally, that's not for us to be uh, analyzing, and therefore I think you have that juxtaposition. You're also being told that the commandments between man and God are significant, just like between man and man. Some people might say the most important commandment is don't murder. Uh, it's not for us to say what's more important or not. Uh, coming to Jerusalem and, and getting your batteries charged spiritually is critical, and therefore it's put sort of in conjunction, the way I see it, uh, with some of these commands which include capital punishment. 
As we come to the end of our discussion from this week's Torah portion, Emor, covering Leviticus chapters 21 through 24, Rabbi, we've talked about these commandments that the Lord gave Moses about 3,500 years ago, yet you live in the place and you live in the time when in 21st century Israel, you get to celebrate these with your family. So take a moment and talk about the modern observances of these ancient festivals. You know, it's incredible. Even though we don't have the temple today and we can't carry out all these commands exactly as they're written, uh, we still have the ability to celebrate these holidays in the land of Israel. And I have to tell you, having grown up in America and um, now living in Israel, to see an entire country, uh, religious and secular, by the way, uh, all caught up in the preparations for holidays and you feel it in the air no matter where you drive, drive up north, drive south, you'll see it everywhere. Uh, it makes you recognize uh, that you're part of something, you're part of something special. And uh, it's quite remarkable. I have to pinch myself sometimes to realize that I'm celebrating this in the same place where my ancestors did uh, thousands of years ago. And you absolutely, on a spiritual level, feel something different uh, in Israel uh, than you do uh, elsewhere. Um, you know, Because everywhere else you are, Life goes on as usual, and people are living their daily lives. And in Israel, everything really uh, shuts down, and people are focused on, on the holiday. And you can get a sense, at least, for that spiritual level. We were talking about Jerusalem before. So every holiday, we go to Jerusalem, and we walk in the old city, and, and pathways that are generally passable are not. It's just mobbed with thousands and thousands of people at all times of day that are going to the Western Wall, that are going to the area of the Temple Mount to try to experience the holiday there. And uh, I think that's part of the blessing of the time in which we live, that we have the opportunity to do so. For thousands of years, uh, our ancestors didn't, and now all of a sudden we're granted that opportunity, and that's, that's truly special. And the last part of our discussion for today, Rabbi, I'd like to say again that Christian believers, we know that Jesus celebrated these holidays when he lived on the earth. We believe they also point to him as Messiah. And something I think you and I can both agree on is that Messiah is coming. And we believe that that is Jesus, but we both agree that Messiah is coming. And the final of these Jewish festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or Sukkot, I want you to hear uh, my thought, and I'd like your comment on it, I believe that when Messiah comes back and sets up the new temple in Jerusalem and Messiah will be worshipped there, that is the ultimate culmination of these holidays, that God himself will be on the earth, that we will worship together, Jews and Gentiles, in the restored Jewish temple, and that's the culmination of the Feast of Tabernacles. We will be in the house of God together. So let's remember that we do have verses, especially in the Feast of Tabernacles, that talk about uh, nations around the world and, and, and non-Jewish faiths uh, worshiping in the temple as well. Uh, it, it says in the verse that it's a house of worship for all nations, and we do believe that. Um, we, we believe that when Messiah comes, he's the mess, spiritual messenger that will help direct us even further uh, to God. But the fact that all nations of the world will be able to come back to that temple and worship uh, is something very special. The Temple Mount is supposed to be a place of peace, a place that unites. And boy, do we look forward uh, to that time to come speedily in our days. I'll close with the verse, Zechariah 14, verse 16. Then it will come about that any 
who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Rabbi, I think we'll join together both and say, Messiah, please come and let's celebrate the Feast of Booths together. Amen, Pastor. That's all I can say to that. So good to visit with you, my friend. I always enjoy discussing the scriptures with you. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Andrea, as well. Shabbat Shalom to you and to all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.